0: The world as we know it has fundamentally changed. What was once considered the future of work is here now. We are operating in an all-digital, work-from-anywhere world. More and more consumers are supporting brands that align with their personal values. It's the values-driven firms that will rebound sooner and grow faster in this new world. Salesforce has partnered with Singapore Community Radio to bring you this podcast. We want to explore the opportunities and the challenges of this new world. We want to talk about the ways in which we will work going forward, how businesses can be a platform for change, and how technology will continue to impact the world. We have some amazing thought leaders, executives, and community advocates joining us, and we hope it sparks some inspiration and innovation for you. To learn more about us, you can head to our blog at salesforce.com /ap/blog
1: Welcome to season 3 of Salesforce's Digital Imperative. For companies in every industry, connecting with customers through digital channels is more important than it's ever been before. In fact, for many companies, a digital transformation it has become a matter of survival. Salesforce helps companies put their customers at the center of everything they do by helping them with their digital transformations. I'm Simone Heng, and today we're talking to futurist Peter Schwartz. Peter's very lucky to be videoing us from Hawaii. I'm going to give you a a bit of a roundup of Peter's incredible stellar career. He has even worked uh, with the Singapore government. He has been working with organizations all around the world to develop um, future planning and creative alternate solutions for these different organizations. Even more fun, he's actually consulted on some of the world's most famous movies like Minority Report. So very exciting to talk to Peter, not just about his stellar career, but also Um, about the future and how digital transformation comes into play. Peter, welcome.
2: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So, Peter, I wanted you to share a little bit more. I've shared a little bit of your background now, but can you explain to people how one becomes a futurist?
2: Sure. You know, uh, I've been doing this for 50 years, right? So um, I began actually... uh, thinking about this in the late 1960s. I was part of the anti-war movement, the social change movements of the 1960s, you know, about racism, feminism, environment, all of those kinds of things. And I realized that I didn't actually know what constituted a better future, which is what I wanted to achieve, right? That was my goal, but I didn't know how to get there. And so I, I began to ask, is there a way to think about what is a better future? And as I got into it, I realized I had the wrong question. The right question was how could I help everybody figure out what they thought was a better future to empower people and organizations to be creative about thinking about the future, to deal with the uncertainty that we all face in thinking about the future so we can make better choices. And so uh, starting in the early 70s I began working first as a research assistant at a place called Stanford Research Institute, you might recognized, associated with Stanford University. And uh, there was a, a group there that was being paid by the US government to think about the future. And that group began using a technique called scenario planning, which I began to learn and help develop and which Shell actually pioneered in the world of business. So I went from Stanford to Shell, where I was head of scenario planning for Shell Worldwide. In fact, that's when I got to know Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore uh, and uh, Lee adopted the Shell scenario planning approach in the early 1980s. Uh, And so I began to work with uh, the government of Singapore soon after uh, I created my own company. In fact, Lee was my second customer.
1: And look at all the rewards uh, that planning in the 80s has done for the country now. It's incredible. Um, What was he like?
2: Oh, he was a a, a brilliant man. I think he's one of the great uh, political and economic leaders of the 20th century. Uh, uh, He had profound insight into organization, into politics, and how you build a society, what it took to create a society. Uh, His book, From Third World to First, uh, is like a manual for building a country. It was really quite profound.
1: Wow. I, hes I mean, from a communications point of view, which is my sweet spot, he's just incredibly well-spoken, highly intelligent man. OK, sorry. Sorry for that slight segue. So bringing it back. So after you worked with the government here, what, what brought you into doing movies and things like that?
2: Well, look, my goal is to help people think about the future. And, you know, I, I have a pretty good selling book uh, called The Art of the Long View uh, about how to do scenario planning. It sold a few hundred thousand copies, which is pretty good for a business book. It's used in business schools. 2 billion people have seen Minority Report, okay? The, 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 the impact of a movie, a hit world movie uh, has an enormous impact. And so I've had the privilege of, of working on four movies, each of which had its own impacts in the world, war games, which got people thinking about things like kids and computers and hackers and nuclear weapons in new ways, sneakers about encryption, deep impact about the possibility of a big rock hitting the earth sometime, and Minority Report, a kind of radical vision of what the future might be like in a high surveillance society. So I've had the privilege of working on four movies that have been big hits in and of themselves, but equally important they've had an impact on the world. So. For me, that's why. And it's a lot of fun seeing you right Look, to have Steven Spielberg put your ideas about the future on screen. I mean, what could be better as a futurist?
1: Wow. So you were really informing at the script writing phase where they were actually yes, brainstorming. Right. for How exciting that would have been to be in the room. And and speaking of deep impact, obviously, COVID-19 has been life changing for many people, was besides a few incredible futurists and thinkers, um, not in the the mass consciousness, and it has happened. Um, So what is your outlook on workplaces amidst the pandemic and post-pandemic? Is remote the new norm or something that's temporary?
2: So far as to say, it's either temporary or the new norm. I think we've begun a process of change. We're not going back to the old world, right? So not everybody is going back to the office the way we were, say, uh, 18 months ago before the pandemic, Um, when the pandemic hit the world change course into the future. What it did was to change the calculus of what we do from home versus what we do in the office or in the doctor's office or in the classroom or in the shop. Now the honest truth in Singapore, I think it will not change as much as it will say in the United States. Uh, The average Singaporean doesn't have the option of moving to a slightly more remote location easily. In California, you know, my home is in California. I'm working out of Hawaii, no big deal, right? Uh, nobody knows that I am. Mental, that we I just don't I have the away.
1: space here, essentially, exactly. logistically, That's what right? right. Yeah. People's f-
2: uh, flats are, frankly, relatively small. So the idea of being home with two kids, uh, a spouse and a mother in law, and trying to get your work done or the kids educated and so on, may not be optimal. So I think we want to see, I think. Uh, highly constrained spaces, Hong Kong, Singapore, even Tokyo, Uh, those will probably look a bit more like they used to. But places like London or Paris or Berlin or Amsterdam or New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles, these will have many new options, the workers in those places. And I think that will have a big impact. Now I think a lot of people want to go back to the office for social reasons and so on. But look, If I was back in San Francisco, I would not be going back to the office. I spent roughly eight hours a week commuting. I'm never gonna give that back. I'm gonna keep those eight hours, thank you. Uh, Well, it makes, that's a whole day a week that you gain. So, you know, much more productive. And a critical thing is this. We're doing this over Zoom, I think. Yeah, we are. Uh, You probably never heard of Zoom a year ago, right? Until- No, I did not. No, exactly. (laughs) and so what's actually happening is we're seeing a huge wave of innovation in the new tools of remote engagement, of remote shopping, remote learning, remote work, and so on. Remote socialization. You know, I do video calls now with friends. We have cocktails with friends and greatness. We never did that before, right? You know, you get together with people. You don't do video calls with friends. Well, we are now. So what I think is happening, we're learning a whole new bunch of behaviors, new contexts, and the technology is radically improving. A year from now, the version of Zoom will be so much better. But there'll be other ones for socialization, for learning, for uh, medicine and so on. So this great wave of innovation is going to make it much more desirable to do things remotely.
1: Absolutely. And what about schools? Um, How do you think schools will be changed or shaped by the pandemic?
2: Well, I think we have to look at it by age group. I think small children call it through, you know, 10, 12 years old, they want. They need to be with other kids. That's part of the social dimension of growing up in a community, right? So I don't think, I, you know, they may have some new tools, gaming and stuff like that, that they got from the pandemic, but their education a year or so from now will resemble what it was a year or so ago. As you get older and older, the options grow. Now, it, look, adolescents wanna be with other adolescents. Teenagers wanna be there, college students wanna be there. So we're gonna find some, again, hybrid solutions. How do you engage? Uh, with your fellow students and when are those situations when you actually are more productive as a student on your own and working virtually. So that, you know, we're learning much more about which are the situations where you want to do it. Look, I'll give you an example. If you're sharing content, there's no reason why it shouldn't be a video and look at a lecture anytime you want. But then if you wanna have a session with the professor, it wants to be real time and live with the other students and engaged in a live session. So, you know, it is already the case in my work when I uh, now just did a session for industry analysts. I sent out a video 24 hours in advance. Here, look at my new scenarios there. Now let's talk about them. When we're coming together, we wanna engage. So there'll be lots of lessons like that that we learn in that process.
1: You raise a really good point. I just finished doing a short course certificate at Harvard and they tried to create, um, and it was an incredible course, but they tried to create the student discussion via like on demand comments through forums. And it just wasn't the same for me. Like there needs right. to be in that education, a human a human connection, even though virtual, component in real time where you're bantering off each other. Uh, Because that's when ideas spark. I don't find that my ideas spark in on-demand when I go back into the forum and everyone's commented in North American time. So you make a really, really great prime point there. So what has the pandemic taught you about resilience? This is both personal and in business.
2: Well, look, there is a big change. Let's talk about business, first of all. In in the world of business, we tended to optimize around efficiency, minimize the cost of everything uh, to make sure that we free up as much cost for the other things we need to do. That's kind of a general operating principle of virtually every business, right? You don't want to waste money. You don't want to, you want to do things for kind of the the least cost at the level you want to do it. Well, there is a cost to that that we never anticipated. And that is when things are disrupted, we may not have the alternatives that we need. And resilience is the ability to come back from disruption and be able to make your own choices, not be the victim of the events, right? That's what resilience really means. And so, for example, in supply chains, just to take a real one, because it's important for Singapore, it is very likely that people that before had kind of a a, a single track supply chain will now be willing to pay for alternative sources of supply to make sure they can back it up if something happens, say the pandemic shuts down a port. Right, so, uh, no, I can't get my supply, or the airline industry. I'm used to flying stuff by air cargo. No, we're not letting airplanes land anymore because they could be infected. Well, I better have an alternative source of supply. And in fact, the auto industry right now is struggling a bit with microchips. Right Enough of microchip dis- uh, was, production was disrupted that they're having a hard time getting the chips for their cars. And so it is worth having alternative supplies for those chips. So that's what we mean uh, about resilience in the world of business and and it is, I think, quite central to uh, how we will operate. For us as human beings, you know the the, the phrase that my wife and I've been using has been uh, reimagine, reinvent, relocate, right? Uh, that is, to be able to rethink your life when things happen, to be able to say, all right, I have new choices that I can make, uh, that I can adapt. I don't have to be trapped by the choices that I've made in the past. Uh, I can create new options for myself. I can tell you a year ago, I would never have imagined owning a second home, uh, let alone Hawaii. We love Hawaii. We used to come here as tourists and all. This was not in my life plan, right? In fact, a year ago, I was supposed to retire. I'm I'm the oldest guy at Salesforce. I was supposed to retire last May. And I've had to, you know, Say, all right, my CEO said, no, you can't retire. It's a different world that I'm living in right now. So at a very personal level, it means you really have to be free enough to rethink your life in those moments and and discover new pathways.
1: Yeah, I think you make an incredible point. We're at this great inflection point in our history as human beings, where we can all be a little bit more limitless, right? Like in our thinking um, and that's very exciting. So um, what are the risks present to the workplace um, and commercial use of rental space as well? Cause you, we did talk about offline. I know that um, Salesforce has a couple of new buildings in, in Ireland and also in Australia. So what, what does this whole transformation pose to real sure, estate. Us, uh, you know,
2: we have used real estate not only as a place to house our workers, right? But we make statements with the big Salesforce towers with the name Salesforce all over it. So it's really part of our identity strategy. These uh, immense buildings all over the world that uh, uh, we have liked as part of who we are. Well, clearly that's got to change, right? Uh, The value of that real estate has changed rather dramatically. And uh, how it turns out, well, I'm not at all sure, to be honest, but we are looking very, very hard at the numbers of people that we have to house. Now, fortunately for us, we're growing so fast that, you know, even if we want to cut 50% of today, we're going to refill that in in six years. You know, so in fact, when I joined Salesforce, uh, we just had abandoned a campus that we outgrew before we built it. We were about to build a whole new campus in San Francisco, we grew so fast. So for us, there's, there's the equation of how fast we're growing, but how few people we will need in the office per unit of growth, right? So we're trying to figure that out. I'm quite confident that a year from now we will have less real estate than we do today. But five years from now, I'm not so sure we wouldn't have a lot of that back.
1: Yep. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, And what about the way that we use the workplace? We touched on that a little bit before, but Mm. you know, how will our daily habits change as, as the worker bees?
2: well look I think among other things uh, the technology that we have is going to gradually wrap itself around us the communications technology the digital assistance the uh, you know the uh, kinds of things that we do as salesforce but equally almost any worker whether they work I mean work with that can be done remotely uh, they're going to have a suite of technology around them that will enable them to do whatever they want from wherever they want uh, whenever they want um, from the car from the beach from their house um, most homes will have a, let me call it a personal studio room. Uh, the personal studio yeah. room will be used for education, for for Soundproofed
1: work, for calls. For,
2: um, it'll have good lighting. It'll have good uh, sound systems, good screens. Uh, the kids will use it. Mom will use it. Dad will use it. Uh, and uh, so, you know, just like... Uh, Today, we have you know media rooms at home. That's a, a different kind of media room, right? That, so uh, this is uh, going to be a, an important part of space now for people at home. There will also be remote facilities like that. Not everybody can have afford or will want to have that in their home. So you can imagine a lot of that empty office space will become casual use, call it studio space, <clears throat> where if I live in an apartment across the street, I may say, oh, I need to book the studio across the street. From 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. for a meeting I want to host and they've got much better tech than I do in my apartment so on
1: and that's a real a
2: lot of that kind of thing
1: and that's a real um, scenario for people in places like Singapore where the flats are tiny Um, we've already seen that with the proliferation of co-working spaces in Singapore but the co-working spaces I'm sure will be adding rooms such as that uh, if they aren't already yeah Fantastic. So my next question is, you have a legacy of getting scenarios correct. That's how you've become this internationally renowned um, futurist. So what is your advice for future-proofing businesses for the new world? Because we have a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to the podcast.
2: Well, you've got to recognize uncertainty. We're in a period of really high uncertainty, right? Uh, The pandemic uh, had an enormous impact on the economy, on society, on politics, And so uh, you really need to use this moment to rethink the future, uh, to look at multiple scenarios, to identify the signals of change in such a way that you know how it's uh, unfolding in front of you and you can actually uh, do something about it and you can adapt in a timely way. One of the great risks you face, you know, is making the wrong technology bets on the wrong market uh, in the wrong time. Uh, And you can be premature and have a great idea and it's dead before you get there. Uh, You know, there's a famous video uh, that Apple did in the 1980s called the Knowledge Navigator. It's on YouTube, if anybody wants to take a look at it. But it was basically the vision that shaped a lot of Silicon Valley for uh, the next 20 years. In fact, it is the iPhone, is what they described in 1987 with the Knowledge Navigator. But there was only one problem. You couldn't make an iPhone in 1987. And Apple ultimately launched a product called the Newton that sank like a rock. Uh, because the technology wasn't right. It wasn't ready for the vision. And so it becomes very important that your technology and your vision of your business matches the scenarios of what's plausible, what the market wants, and so on. And so scenario planning is a very powerful tool for helping you shape the strategy in a time of great uncertainty.
1: So... If businesses want to hire a futurist to do this, big businesses, it, do you recommend? Obviously, you would recommend that they do, but where do they go to find a futurist?
2: Well, yeah, it's a great question. There, frankly, there aren't that many. Uh, you know, there are a few universities. Uh, the, 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 the best bet is actually to train your own people, uh, people who know your business. You know, you 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 got a really bright young person on your staff who really gets the business. Uh, There are online courses. There's a program at University of Houston. There's the Institute for the Future. Uh, So there's a number of places. You can read my book, The Art of the Longview. Uh, But I think the best bet is train your own uh, because it matters a hell of a lot to understand the business.
1: I see. So marry what they have of their industry knowledge with uh, what's happening in the world. So... If we all wanted to be our own kind of futurists and keep up on trends and things like that as lay people, what would you, um, besides reading your book um, and besides having an interest in current affairs, what else would you recommend?
2: Look, fortunately, we live in a time where there's an enormous amount of available information. The the thing I, I, I think. Uh, you need to do is two things the first and most obvious is is there's a few things to read regularly the economist is probably the single best newspaper in the world if you read the economist cover to cover every week you'd be pretty well informed they're they're really good uh watch cnbc asia obviously that's the other one of that sort you want to i report
1: for them so i'm very happy that you said that um yes as you (laughs) say
2: but the second thing is this look today with the internet we have a a remarkable opportunity. We have many friends and connections. Let them be your filters and your sources. Let them say, oh, I read an interesting article. I I went to an interesting conference. I met an interesting person. Uh, I have a network of people I've developed over the years that do that for me, that send me articles, connect me with interesting people, say, hey, you ought to go to that conference. It's going to be really interesting, and so on. Or you ought to watch that television program. Uh, You want to cultivate a network of people out there that you trust, who are themselves interesting observers of the world, who will feed you intelligence that they pick up.
1: Fantastic advice for all of us keen amateur futurists. Um, So the last thing that I I, I wanted to ask you is, if you had to name um, the most apparent trend for the workplace, new innovations that are coming out right now, what would they be? And this is regardless of the pandemic or not, but obviously the pandemic has been very influential. So just one major, major trend. Well,
2: we touched on it earlier. It it is the uh, ability to collaborate with new technology, right? Uh, We we bought Slack recently, that was about that. It is enabling teams to collaborate very, very creatively. Uh, Almost everything we do, we do with other people. You know, we do a few things alone, but most things we do in some degree in a group, in a department, etc. And the tools we've had for collaboration have been minimal, right? We send emails back and forth to each other or we go to a conference room. Uh, the tools of collaboration of online whiteboards and all kinds of things like that. I mean, I was working with part of our team today and we were coming up with new ideas and brainstorming. Uh, Well, uh, there's this new tool for online brainstorming that you can create new images very quickly. It was very cool. Uh, And so we're going to see just lots of that. So all the tools of collaboration and engagement with our fellow colleagues, with our customers to some extent, that that is what I see as most exciting in the near future.
1: Fantastic. Any uh, last words for everyone on the podcast
2: Well, you know, it's a a tough time. Everybody, nobody should kid themselves that we're not in tough times. But fortunately we can see the light at the end of this tunnel. And we're in a time where there's an enormous amount of innovation as a result. You think back to the crisis in the 1970s of the oil crisis and the uh, inflation crisis, so on. That's when Apple and Microsoft were born. You think about the 2007, 2008 financial crisis. That's when Uber and Lyft were born. Uh, These moments of disruption create great innovation. Now we're going to see innovation and in all the tools like Zoom and Hopin and others. This is, those are the technologies that are being born out of this crisis. So this is a huge opportunity. So I'm very optimistic about how this will all turn out.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Peter Schwartz, for all of your uh, great predictions about the future. It's very exciting.